Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but can't find diverse, talented candidates? Look no further because we are here to help you out. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs where you can browse listings, post your own jobs, and sign up for email updates when new job listings are posted. This week on the job board, Propel is looking for a senior product designer for their growth team, as well as a creative director. Both positions are looking for remote applicants, but are also looking for applicants in Brooklyn, New York. Mosaic is looking for a senior product designer. This is a remote position. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more information on these listings and others. Get started with us and expand your job search or recruiting efforts today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. Got a couple of quick announcements. First off, if you haven't seen it already, we released our holiday gift guide uh, just a few weeks ago. We did it kind of earlier on because we know that, you know, there's still supply issues in terms of shipping and all that sort of stuff. So instead of us releasing our gift guide in December like we usually do, we did it much earlier in November. So if you haven't seen it yet, go check it out. It's on revisionpath.com. As soon as you go to the website, just click the pop up that comes up. It'll take you right to it. I'll also put a link to it in the show notes if you want to check it out. Had a lot of fun putting it together, so I really hope that you enjoy it. Secondly, we released a bonus episode a couple of weeks ago, in case that hadn't hit your feed yet. Uh, We did an episode on the design of Black Panther Wakanda Forever. It's a really great conversation with myself, Jordan Green, Regine Gilbert, and Paul Webb. And we not only go into the plot of the movie, but the music, the symbolism, the art, and the overall design really great if by chance you're on twitter and you've seen hannah beekler talking about the production design this episode is an excellent compliment to what she's doing there so if you've seen the movie go check out that bonus episode we did it right around i think a week after the movie came out so make sure you go check that out also if you've listened to the show for any amount of time this year then you already know what i'm going to talk about next It's the 10th Collective. So the 10th Collective has kind of changed a bit over the months since we launched it earlier this year. Um, Of course, it includes our job board, which is now the 10th Collective job board. But the 10th Collective is also a talent collective initiative that's from Revision Path and State of Black Design. So if you're a company and you want to add a listing to our job board, you now get access to members of the 10th Collective. And if you're a black designer looking for work, like if you've been impacted by any of these layoffs that have happened this year in tech and design, you'll want to be a member of the 10th Collective because what that is, is a place where employers who are looking to hire black designers can easily set up conversations with you. It's free to join. All you have to do is fill out just a short profile and you're all set. You'll only get contacted when companies are ready to talk to you and you can hide your profile from other companies or be completely anonymous. It's a great resource whether you're looking for your next opportunity or not. Just a really great asset to have in your back pocket in general. So if you want to sign up, if you're a black designer, you want to sign up, head over to the 10thcollective.com or check out the link that's also in the show notes. 
This episode of Revision Path is brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and some fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. So what are you waiting for? Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. Now for this week's interview. This is part one of a two-part interview that I had with design strategist and design educator, Andrew Bass. Let's start the show. All right. So tell us who you are and what you do. Uh, I'm Andrew Bass, and I am essentially design strategist, educator, art director, graphic designer. Day job, I work as a art and production manager at an association called RIMS, um, handling their member publication. And I, on the side, I also have my freelance consultancy, Straight Design LLC, where I take on various different clients, focusing a little bit more on the small business side and not for profit, um, as well as I'm an adjunct lecturer at City Tech, or the full name, New York City College of Technology where I teach design thinking, design studio. How has uh, 2022 been going for you so far? We're kind of near the end of the year. When you look back, like, how would you say the year has been? It's actually been, in perspective, has been pretty good. I'm employed, so that's good. Hey. (laughs) (laughs) I'm getting, transitioning more in from my basic print background into more digital design, which is actually good, where I... Also trying to kind of squeak my way into doing a little bit more motion graphics, but it's actually been going pretty well. I've been focused more on my full-time job in teaching and a little pullback away from straight design due to family thing, personal issues. You know, so I, I went through a divorce, had to sell the house and all this during COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, Wow. Yeah, but 2022 has been, compared to 2021 and and definitely 2020, it's been great in the grand scheme of things. I really can't complain about stuff, but it's been going pretty well. And and I'm just trying to get myself up to get, for 2023, to get a little bit back into focusing a little bit more on straight design and what that next evolution is going to be for it. Yeah, I feel like the last few years for a lot of people have been this sort of, I don't know, period of trying to just get get acclimated to the way of the world now. And especially now that, you know, we're it seems like capitalism is trying to push us out of out of COVID in a way that like everyone's really trying to think like, oh well for next year I need to try to get back out there more. I need to try to do more. You know, like try to resume what life was like prior to all Mm -hmm. of this. You know? Well I mean I will say for myself, and I'm still wrestling with, quote, um, and I hate all these trend words that they keep coming out with, but quote, the new normal, because I now officially work from home and will be working from home for the next several years for my full-time job. Saddle that with straight design, which is also still from home. (laughs) You know, the only time I actually go out for design is when I teach, learning how to sort of marry all that in one residence, basically my home without sort of losing my mind and still maintaining that creative inspiration is extremely hard. 
And I'm still trying to formulate plans as to how to tackle it because I'm on what plan A2 now or something like that because I've gone through the 26 alphabet and you know, gone through <laughs> one through 10. So I'm on my third iteration of how to make this all go, go uh-huh. down seamlessly. I think COVID just also put a pause on so many things that I think it is really hard to sort of get jumpstart ourselves back into, okay, this is how we did business. This is how we talk to each other. This is how we do stuff. And from the design aspect, I definitely have seen it become stagnated where I really feel that that face-to-face has actually kind of hurt a little bit of, of at least my design process in talking with both coworkers and clients that, you know, without that sort of personal face-to-face stuff, reading each other's body language, playing off the vibes and stuff like that, that it has kind of stifened a little bit of the creativity. I understand why everybody's trying to say, okay, you know, how do I get back into this, this normal like life before COVID? Some of it I think is self-induced because for a whole host of thing, reasons, 2020 was, it, I say from 2020, 2021 was a real big pot of, Let's stir everybody. Let's scramble everybody's brain um, <laughs> with so much crazy misinformation about so many things from the pandemic to politics to just how life is going to be to, yeah. you know, the, the state of the world and all that, that I think it really kind of, if I can say mind, mind fucked us a bit, you know, that we still haven't really kind of gotten out of it. But the thing is, we need to, you know, and the thing is, you know, even during COVID, life doesn't stop. It's just, you know, you just have to adapt and figure a new way to do things. And, you know, it's slowly coming. It's slowly coming. And I think as more and more folks kind of get out that haze, things will kind of lock back into place and and pretty much kind of sync up as to how things were beforehand with just new processes. That's all. It's just going to be new processes. So it's it's it. it sort of forced a change for a lot of things. You know? Yeah. And we all know humans don't like change very much. So <laughs> it's a shock to everyone's system. And I think it's starting now to, to seep in and like, yeah, okay, this is what we're going to do now. Right. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's been something I think a lot of us have just had to get comfortable with the constant pivots, yeah. whether it's lockdowns or work from home or hybrid mm-hmm. or, yeah. you know, and that's, and we're just talking about on a like work kind of level. I mean, mm-hmm. personal level, there's people that have lost loved ones. There's yeah. people that have gotten COVID mm-hmm. multiple times. You know, they have long yeah. COVID. Like there's a lot that has, has really come out and it's continuing to happen. I would say even with the vaccines and such, like yeah. there's still just a lot that's it's going on right now. It's something we just got to have to learn to live with and navigate that as, as yeah. anything else. I mean, because. And, and we uh, have to do it, unfortunately, on the individual level, because I don't yeah. think that structures have really been set up for us to do it on a societal level yet. No, it, that, it's been misstepped from day one. And once it's been misstepped, it's very hard to sort of start building that foundation. And so that momentum is lost. So it is very much individually, which. Will be, you know, the success rate on that is going to be a wide range of stuff because, mm-hmm. you know, it's, um, some folks will do better, others will do worse. And it's um, the only thing is, is we just got to try and support one another when we can. 
I mean, that's lofty goals. Let's hope that, you know, we all can do that. And I think that'll help things a little bit better. But yeah, it's very much a matter of now. It also kind of shows how fleeting life is and how, I mean, a nanosecond, how things can shift. And you have Mm -hmm. to either be ready to jump in and adapt or you just stay in that place and just just cease to exist. Yeah. Let's lighten the conversation up because people probably too didn't expect us to be going all deep about COVID and stuff. Let's lighten it up and talk about your design consultancy, Straight Design, which you've ran now for, you know, 15 years. Like, tell me about that. How did it start? It wasn't even planned. It just kind of happened because I will freely admit it started because of my arrogance. I was working at a time at a company and I was going to had the opportunity to start teaching as an adjunct. And I just kind of took for granted that because we had such a relaxed work schedule there that, oh, I could teach classes during the day and come in four days a week and not just one day. This is, you know, this was before anyone ever did any sort of like remote stuff. Mm -hmm. And I didn't bother to tell my editor in chief that I had done this. And so basically I was tasked with, look, if you drop the teaching gig you now or teach at night or you just got to leave the job because essentially you you making you accepted two jobs and this is your first job. And I kind of refused at that point. Subconsciously, I was kind of done with where I was working at. I had been there for a few years and there was a lot of changes. The company was going through a merger. I should say an acquisition. And things were changing in my department, my staff. They had made me, they had had me actually cut my staff. And so I was the only one working on the magazine at the time and through budget cuts. And I kind of just used that as an excuse subconsciously to sort of like exit out. And so when I did that, I realized, oh, what am I going to do for money? Uh, (laughs) So I was like... (laughs) okay, we're going to have to kind of freelance. And I took some time to sort of just kind of coast a little bit, get my head together. And I was approached by a uh, client to submit a proposal for developing a magazine prototype, as well as what it would be to produce this magazine on a monthly basis. It was a magazine based in the Netherlands, based on uh, financial technology, which I was completely unfamiliar with that subject. But I submitted my proposal and I was awarded the the gig, and that gave me the impetus to okay, let me start straight design. Now, um, at the time, it was called AD Bass Designs until I changed the name later on, and that started the ball rolling for straight design. And they were a very good client, <laughs> and it morphed from just doing magazine, the magazine and the production, it to doing event materials to promotional collateral and it spurred adding to my clientele roster and so i was running that in a physical studio in manhattan for a good number of years at least like five years in there and then the recession of 2008 hit as well as everybody else i started losing some clients because they were cutting back on money but i was still doing pretty well with that but then once my big client sort of went away because the, the owner of that company didn't realize what the financial investment was in starting up a magazine, because a magazine doesn't really break even 
mm-hmm. at least five to seven years. And the owner was like, whoa, this is taking too long. <laughs> <laughs> and so they kind of pulled back on it. Still kept all the event stuff and uh, the event materials and stuff, but just wasn't doing the magazine. You know, I started losing clientele a bit because of the economic situation. And at the time I was married and both my wife then and me were self-employed and with we just had our daughter and I was like, okay, somebody's gonna have to go back inside because health insurance was as much as my mortgage. And I was Mm -hmm. like, this is killing my savings quick. And that's when I just made the transition to go back in-house, but I still kept straight design as my freelance consultancy so that I would basically do the projects that I still were very interested in on the side, but I didn't have to worry about hunting down and bringing in clientele while maintaining my whole household. But, um, and I've kept that way for, from since 2012, I think. Yeah. From 2012 to now where I'm now thinking about a, Eventually, I might resurrect straight design in, in a more full-time capacity in the next several years. Mm-hmm. But that's how I started it. It was really just a fluke. Yeah. That's so interesting. Hearing you talk about how you started that reminds me of how I started my studio. It's so funny that you said it was out of arrogance because I feel like I started <laughs> in the same way. Like I was a senior designer working at AT&T and... To be honest, I mean, I was completely self-taught. I just felt like, oh, I got this. I got this. And I mean, I was working there in AT&T for at least back then. I can't speak to how it is now. This was 2008 when I quit. But it was very much a production house. It was all on the assembly line. Basically, you got a packet with all your stuff that you needed to design and you did it in Photoshop and you sliced it up in Dreamweaver and coded it. It was very there was no like love or soul into it because you had to crank it out and like eight hours or less, essentially. Uh Um, And so you're just doing this on a constant loop. And I was like, I could do this better myself. And I just quit and started my own studio. Like, I really felt like, yeah, I could I could do this. I got this. But yeah, like, it's interesting because even when I started, I had a different name for my business. I started it out. It was called 318 Media because I wanted Mm to, one, it was after my birthday. And then two, I just wanted to have like a cool kind of funky name. (laughs) I ended up changing it later because there were other three blank blank media companies in Atlanta. There was like a three, I know there was a three, five, two media. There was a three sixty media and people were getting us confused. And so we had to have like a, like a standoff, like, okay, Mm. somebody's got to change. And I was like, (laughs) I'll change mine because I had a weird spelling for it too. Cause I don't know. I thought it was cool to have like the number three, the word 18, but then I had to keep explaining it to people (laughs) and then forms wouldn't take a business name that started with a number. It was a whole bunch of things. Oh, wow, and then yeah. I just changed it to lunch in like 2014, 2015 and like completely rebranded the company. So it made more sense after I did all of that. And like, yeah. I, I even found like business increased once that happened because one people weren't getting us confused with other yes. companies. And then yeah. I had like all these kind of gimmicks around lunch. Like my business card mm. was one of those. You know, those like plastic key tag things for like CBS yeah. or whatever. Yeah. It was like that. That was what the business card was. And every time I met with a client, I'd mark off a little circle on the back oh, and cool. I'd be like, oh, if you get a certain number, you get a free whatever, whatever. You know, yeah. like I was, I could play all these little gimmicks into it and it was fun. That's cool. I've thought about going back to freelancing now, especially since I am not working and the job market is trash. Mm-hmm. 
I'm thinking about it. So I, I get what you mean about kind of always sort of having it in your back pocket in a way is yeah, yeah. like something I mean, that's just your own thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, it was great experience. It still is a great experience. It was a great experience having the actual physical space, dealing with clients coming into the office, doing going to presentations and stuff like that, mm-hmm. contracting freelancers to work on projects and so on like that. But it was also a good experience in understanding that New York City does not like small business. They don't like freelancers. Unless you are a huge company, the state is just going to rob you blind. <laughs> with oh, stuff. wow. And it's really hard. It was harder than I really imagined to run a business in New York City and New York State because New York City is its own entity. And then you have to deal with New York State as well. And so and then you got the feds. So you get a triple hit. Oh, um, yeah. It was very, very interesting, and I would probably not open up a business in New York City again. I would mm-hmm. go to a different state. I'm starting to understand some of the reasons why some companies open up in particular states just from the business point of view. It makes a lot of sense, but it was a good experience, I have to say, and it actually did very well, even to my surprise, because I didn't expect to do so well. Starting off, I thought I was going to have to kind of struggle a bit, but it things just rolled in really nicely. And I was like, ooh. And I knew that wasn't going to last. Mm-hmm. I just didn't know it was going to hit sooner than it did. But it was it was a great experience, and it just helped strengthen how I do my, my consultancy now my, when I freelance and stuff that I got a little bit better practice with clientele. Because I am, I really don't like that side of doing a business. I really just want to create. But and I was always trying to find. I said if I was going to do straight design as a company, company again, where it's just more than me, I need to find somebody who's this, who's good on the business side that doesn't mind doing all the um, the numbers and the paperwork mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Because now that stuff really does consume a lot of time and. It really showed like it's at being a creative takes a lot. We all know being a creative takes a lot of our energy. But when that's split, we're doing this sort of the other side of our brain, the more logical side, sometimes how that can disrupt things now. And it's hard to get back into that creative flow after you've been dealing with, you know, invoices and, and setting out proposals and responding to RFPs and yeah. you know, tracking down those clients that are a little late in their payment, you know, and then taxes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now with that, that yeah we you know we don't like taxes but that that's oof, those quarterlies <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah way on that one. Uh, you are preaching to the choir on that one i know exactly what you mean yeah so <laughs> it it was a great experience and i i try to pass that information to students now mm-hmm. and always have incorporated a little bit of business sense in my teachings with students so that you know they're better prepared for that because I never got that when I was in school. There was business not considered part of the curriculum. It was like, you know, it was about technique and creating and stuff. Not like, okay, now you got to make a living. How are you going to survive? Mm-hmm. Um, so, but it was a great experience. I mean, it still is a great experience, but it, what it is now is that I can pick and choose what I really want to work on. Um, yeah. And I really tend to like working on not-for-profits or trying to help you know, businesses get their start and really understanding how important the strategy of design is and not so much you know, get sidetracked by all the nice shiny bells and whistles, but to really understand how this design strategy is going to help them propel their company's message to ensure they 
uh, successful in interacting with their consumer, uh, their customer base and stuff. And I kind of like that. And that hat working full time and, and doing the, the consultancy on the side, that enables me to do that a little bit more without having to worry about the slow times and stuff like that. So it's, it has worked out pretty well for right now. Although, like I said before, I'm thinking of the next evolution that's probably going to happen within the next year. Mm -hmm. I mean, you mentioned nonprofits and sort of smaller businesses that you really like to work with. What does your creative process look like when you're starting on a project? Generally, when I'm uh, first starting on a project, this is assuming I, I'm, I've been awarded a project, right? Yeah. Okay. Because then there's a lot of, there's another process on trying to get that project. <laughs> um, <laughs> once I've gotten a project, um, I really try to just hone in and, and identify what is the problem that they're facing. You know, what, what is it that they really need to happen? And in that, you know, once I've kind of locked that solid, that kind of helps me figure out my focus on what I need to sort of really understand about them, their audience, um, what they're actually trying to put out there, whether it's some sort of service, whether it's about the face of their company. And I really try to learn as much as I can about them to sort of really put myself in their shoes and, and try to put myself in the shoes of who they're trying to reach. So that way I can sort of talk in the same tone, the same voice. Mm -hmm. And that usually, that's a lot of my discovery time. I always tell my clients that, you know, I need a good, I give myself about four weeks of discovery time to go through stuff, to understand, to talk to people, to be able to really understand the gist and spirit of what this is and who, who they claim their audience is to see if it actually matches up before I ever begin sort of thinking about, you know, creative solutions. And then once I've done that, that's when I just kind of go back to them and kind of confer sort of my findings where I sort of send back to them a, for lack of a, a creative brief, you know, just letting them know, okay, this is sort of where I think this is at. And just to get them the cosign, yeah, this is what we see for ourselves. This is what we see our audience. This is where we definitely agree with this is what's happening. This is the the sentiment. And and then that's when I start getting into my creative process where I start trying to, you know, understand, you know, the competitors, see what they've done, see what this company's done and what works well. Because sometimes companies don't realize they have some good stuff. It's just maybe not executed well or thought out correctly. And so I try to see what is good, you know, because Nobody wants to reinvent the wheel unless it's necessary and see, like I said, see what works, what doesn't work, and then start beginning to put those pieces together and start developing my own sort of creative point of view as to how I think the project should go and what's going to be best for their purposes moving forward, which, you know, again, that's another big chunk of my time that depending on the scope of the project definitely is at least a month. For I like telling folks weeks versus months because it seems shorter in weeks than months of you know <laughs> math. Yeah. But I tell them it's usually about four to six weeks. I'm going to start doing creative development. You know, if it's a kind of a small base project, small to medium size, and that allows me to actually kind of run through a lot of my ideas because, in all transparency, as a creative, 
I also build in cushion time for myself with that because I'm not starting on a project right off the bat. I'm a procrastinator. Mm. And I probably should not be putting this out on air, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm a procrastinator. And sometimes it takes a while for me to jumpstart to get in things uh, because deadlines really drive my juices. I don't know why that is, but at least about a week or so, I kind of just kind of float through the project in the development phase, kind of looking at things, inspiring myself before I realize, oh, man, okay, I got to get my stuff going and, and into gear. And then once I'm in gear, though, I'm going through it. I'm flying through it to build up my mock so that way I can present to the clientele. And I walk them through the whole process. And I explain, I kind of educate them about the aspect of design and why I have done exactly what I've done. You know, the choices I've made from all the elements so that they have a better understanding that this is not just about making things look nice and that... Colors, type, images, it just seems like random choices when, no, there's a calculated reason for the choices on this and what the desired result is expected from it because of these choices. And then it's a matter of, I don't usually have gotten from clients a, an extensive back and forth on things. It's been a pretty quick, yeah, we like this choice. We've got these few little changes and then that's it. And then the end of the process is where I now start finalizing everything up. And that usually is the quickest part of the process because all the stuff I build up is to high fidelity in terms of the conceptuals. And so that way, all I'm doing is you know just tweaking some things unless it completely requires a rethought, in, which we never want to do there. And luckily, I've only had one or two of those. And that was an early in part of my career. Because that's embarrassing to go back to the drawing board to like, because you completely did not catch what was going on. Mm. And then, you know, from there, it's just providing the materials to the clientele and in following up with them now. And that's one of the things that I think sometimes as designers, creators, we don't do is that we don't follow up to say, okay, hey, how did things go six months out? You know, yeah. How did everything happen? Are you satisfied? What's going on? To try and maintain and build those networks and those relationships so that it becomes a longstanding client base. But also, I think it's just good practice ship or businessmanship to, you know, follow up with your clients, make certain that what you provided to them is doing what they needed to be done and that they're satisfied and that it's helping them. So that actually tells you how well you've done yourself. Yeah. Yeah. But that's generally my process. I hope I didn't drone on on that. No, I mean, I think I think that in part definitely is good because then it also means that you can possibly get repeat clients. Exactly. You know, repeat work from the same client. I mean, that's always good. I know back when I was doing my studio, I would have clients I do work for and then I would follow up. And if they needed things on a more regular basis, eventually that graduated to becoming a retainer. Yeah. And then that's like guaranteed monthly income, which we all love that. That's great. And referrals. (laughs) You know, yeah, client, current clients can refer you to people you now, so you get new clients. Absolutely. You know? Let's kind of dive a little bit into your personal story. I think folks now can kind of hear the the New York accent. Um, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> talk to me about growing up there. You mean my Brooklyn accent? Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I'm born and raised in in New York, uh, specifically Brooklyn. Because mm-hmm. people ask me, oh, where I'm from? I'm, I'm from Brooklyn. I'm Brooklynese. Um, 
Because yes, people from Brooklyn, we we have Brooklyn as a culture. Whether yeah. folks realize it, or at least old Brooklyn now, because yes, okay. I'm going to say Brooklyn is not quite the same as it used to be. So old school Brooklyn, yeah. Yeah, I grew up in Bedford Stuyvesant now during the 70s, 80s, and 90s, crack era and blackout from 1977. So hmm. Bed Stuy was rough. <laughs> it was not for the weak of heart. And me growing up as the nerd, because I've always been a nerd, always been the tallest dude out of everybody, very quiet, reserved. So I was the art kid. And so naturally, I was very, I was bullied growing up now. And for me to deal with that, I always used to just draw. Now, I would just go into my notebooks and draw these fantasy worlds just to escape from all the crap that I was growing up with. Because I also, my dad was an alcoholic. When I was younger, it wasn't as bad as it was when I got older. Mm-hmm. But when he did drink, it was not a pleasant environment. Um, mm. So couple that with the knuckleheads in my neighborhood who were bugging me and my brother, I retreated to my drawing. Now, I just went in there and I just started drawing worlds to just escape for a few hours and stuff. And yeah. It was great therapy for me. Unfortunately, as I think back, a lot of the scenes that I would, was drawing were um, conflicts. It was like war, space invasions, shooting. I was blowing up shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you talk to a therapist, that means that's a manifestation of what's going on out there. And I'm like, but I had fun. <laughs> so, <laughs> and with the drawing, that actually got me interested in do people do this? You know, and so I started looking deeper into cartoons because I love cartoons and how they were drawn. I was like, oh, people do this. When I found out as a kid, you know, folks actually do because I don't know what I was thinking as a kid. I just thought they magically appeared. I didn't yeah. know you actually had to do that. And that fascinated me because I was like, oh, maybe one day I can draw some cartoons. And that shifted my invasion drawings into drawing characters and doing like little mini cartoons and to date myself i used to do these little flip books where you draw them on the edge of the paper and you just flip them and then i remember flip books yeah yeah we all did that but it was just so cool and people loved it when i did it you know at my school and they were like ah do one for me do one for me and I started getting a little reputation for Andrew's the he's the animator. He makes these cartoons that move. You know? And it was pretty <laughs> cool. And I was like, oh, maybe one day I could do this for a living. But as I started growing up, I got into graffiti because the introverted kid started breaking out his shell a little bit. And I was fascinated with graffiti. Little did I know that was my first introduction to design, you know, specifically graphic design. Because what folks don't seem to realize, you know, back then graffiti was just, it was vandalism. You got to get those kids. And I don't advocate now at 55 to ever go paint up on people's property. That is, you know, having been a property owner, I'm going to beat you up if you write on my property. (laughs) Um, But it was beautiful work to see the letters, the formation of these, these characters, and then the the letters of the characters and then the actually the figurines you put into the, the pieces in the murals, which are all based off of the Smurfs, Van Bodie's work. I forgot the character name with the mushroom head or 
at that time, it was because that was the beginning of the hip hop culture. And I say hip hop purposely now, mm-hmm. because hip hop culture it was the trifecta of emceeing. Notice I say emceeing and not rapping. Emceeing, breakdancing, and graffiti. Graffiti was the visual expression of all this, where breakdancing was the physical manifestation of, of the movement, and emceeing was the verbalization of it. And there's a distinct difference between emceeing and rapping. Now, again, dating myself, because we rappers today are not emcees. So me... Oh, no, no, absolutely. Abs- yeah. I would venture to say rappers today are barely rappers. Bingo! So... <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that's got me into graffiti. And I I just fell in love with how you create your own letters and create these characters into these stylized formations and then the color. When I had my black book with the markers, the it was Pantone markers. Little did I know Pantone would actually be so much a part of my life. You know? mm-hmm. But those Pantone markers with the smell, I love those smell of those markers. It was pure alcohol. Now, pure alcohol, and they soaked through everything, but they left beautiful pieces. And that was actually my very first foray into being an artist and drawing and in design. And that, from that point on, I knew I wanted to do something creatively for the rest of my life. Now, I just didn't know what. Mm. And I went through different phases. As I went from high school, I went to Brooklyn Tech, which was... And still is a very specialized high school that focuses on math and science. But they had an industrial design program in there and a little bit of arts. And so I took that because I suck at math. I love science, but I'm not a scientist. And so I did industrial design, which was very much equated to, let's say, package design, product design um, and architecture. Yeah. Which did interest me. And for a time, I was like, maybe I'll I'll be an architect. But I really like more of the, the spontaneous creativity in design-oriented projects. You know? and so when I left Brooklyn Tech, I applied, was thinking about college, and I applied to Pratt. I applied to City Tech. At the time, City Tech back then was called New York City Technical College. That's what it was called back then. Mm-hmm. And those are the only two schools I applied to because I didn't know of any other schools. And also because my mother told me I was either going to go to Pratt or City Tech because they're in Brooklyn, and so that way I'm close to home. So my mother was very much the super max warden growing up. <laughs> now, so I looked at both. I applied to both. I got into both. I went to I first focused on going to Pratt, but I couldn't afford that bill. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, ooh, that's too much money. And I didn't really have a true portfolio back then. I just had my black book and some work from high school because. Like I said, Brooklyn Tech was not based, uh, it was not an art school. So I didn't know anything about building a portfolio, what's needed or anything like that. So I just had little trinkets. So I went to City Tech or New York City Technical College at that time. And that's where I really started learning what it is to be in the creative industry. And, mm-hmm. and I knew right then and there, yeah, this is the choice I want to do. I definitely want to be in the creative industry. Now I got to decide. Is it advertising? Is it this thing called graphic design? Yeah. Is it this thing being an illustrator? Because um, a couple of my professors were pushing me to be an illustrator. Now, and they were like, you know, you just have this natural talent. You should be an illustrator. 
I just didn't like sitting in those classes for six hours drawing stuff. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> That's like, this is boring me. It, did, it wasn't as fun to me. And I did a year at City Tech. And then I transferred, uh, especially at the encouragement of one of my professors, because I was uh, all A's. I got 4.0 for that first year. Nice. All my projects just didn't feel like it was a challenge to me. Yeah. Even though at the the professor who I'm revering right now, her name is Dorothy Hayes. She's passed on. Oh, yeah. Um, I've, I've heard of her. She's been mentioned on the shows by a yes. lot of people. Yeah. Dorothy Hayes. At the time when I was a student of hers, I could not stand her. She was <laughs> too hard. I was like, she was always on my ass. Always, always. Bass. Because she always called me Bass. Never called me Andrew. Bass. Bass, you can do better. You can do better. You know, where's your work? I want to see your work. Yeah. You know? But looking back, I mean, that really forged who I am. And I'm forever thankful to her and a few other professors I met. By the way, which they were all black. I was lucky. I had quite a few black professors. My design education, nice. uh, which was unheard of, which was, I, it was just, that's why I was saying that was destined to be and stuff. And so I transferred to Pratt, and that's where <laughs> that's where shit got real uh, when I went to Pratt. <laughs> um, Tell me about it. How was it? It was challenging. I went to challenge. I got challenged. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I almost dropped out at my what was it sophomore year? Uh, well, actually, not. It was my transfer year. Yeah, because when I transferred over, I wasn't. Some of my credits transferred over, some didn't, because Pratt had a foundation year that they required everybody to take. So I had a mix of classes that were from the foundation class and then classes that were able to be transferred over. It was a completely different environment. And we're talking about 1986. Mm -hmm. Pratt was intense. The workload was nothing like I had experienced at any school. It was weekly. It was a lot to manage. I mean, many projects, um, very much about understanding and defending the basis of your projects, which I hadn't understand before that. I thought it was just about, oh, we, how do you make this stuff pretty? And then that's where I first learned, no, it's about why are you doing this? And for who is it for? Basically, what is your thinking behind this? And that tripped me up because I was like, oh, I did that. That, that seemed like a lot. As well as at that same time, there was a lot of things going on in my child, my well, not childhood, but at my home with my my folks. Is at that point now, my dad definitely was heavy into his alcoholism, mm-hmm. um, and so going to Pratt was a good and a bad experience. Good in the fact is that the work was intense. It forced me to double down and really get involved in understanding the nature of the work that I'm building. Because the very coming from four A's to where I just thought, yeah, I automatically get that coming into Pratt. And then the end of that first transfer year, I realized, now granted also too, I was doing a little more partying that transfer year. Because I was like, ah, I got this. This is easy. That's when my GPA went from 4.0, dropped down to 2.0. Because I, I, I was That's a dip. Partying. Oh, it's a major dip. Yeah. Um, and a couple of my teachers came to me, uh, professors came to me and said, look, hey, what you can do the work. What is going on? You're not applying yourself. And that's when I woke up and said, OK, Andrew, you, you forget this partying. You can party after you graduate. <laughs> let's mm-hmm. let's get let's get on the ball. And I 
worked my ass off to try and get my grades back up. And it was never back to 4.0. I graduated with what, what, 3.0. I worked it back up. But that one year did that much damage to me. Wow. Yeah. And so the other good things with that was the, I'd have to say, it's sort of like the, with the intensity of the work, it was also the way the professors tried to instill some of the actual business dynamics into how you build a creative, but also how to be a, a creative. It wasn't extensive. It was snippets. It was, what was her? It was my copywriting professor, Lorraine McNeil, who also happened to be black. She was a black woman. She would occasionally mention about the business aspect and what would be expected out of there. It wasn't a full-fledged business kind of introduction. That didn't exist when I was going to school. But she did try to put some nuggets out there because I found out about business and stuff on my own. Now, that was the other good thing about Pratt is that they had an extensive library. And that's where I really got a lot of my supplemental education was in that library. I was in the library too much. I, they had so many books. I couldn't keep my hands off those books. The bad aspects of Pratt was that I felt very isolated as a black student. Pratt was predominantly white and students who basically came from more affluent families. There was a contingent of students of color on there. A lot of them stayed on the dorms because they were not basically from New York. They were from other states. So I didn't have that kind of connection because the, the folks who were in the dorms, they had their own clique. They focused more, a little too much more on partying than yeah. education. I always called it edutainment. And I'm like, I already saw the effect of partying on my grades. I was like, nah, man, I, I got to get serious because, you know, we want to get a job. We get, this is going to be our career. The isolation was very detrimental to me in that aspect because I didn't have a vacuum. I, had, I didn't really have folks I can uh, confer with about how their education was going, how classes were, how projects were, to bounce off ideas with somebody else as to like, what do you think about this and something like that. The other thing is, too, I thought the teachers were very, the white teachers, I thought they were very sort of off hands with the students of color. Mm. Uh, they seemed very apt to help the white students, but not so eager to help the black and Latino students. It was kind of like, you can figure this out on your own. I'll just give you this little nugget and let's see what's going on. But then you see them confirm very regularly with the white students, you know, after class, off premises, you know, they would extend numbers to them. I'm like, huh? How come we don't get that? The only professors who actually did do that were ha the professors who happened to be of color. I had three of them. I had Richard Perry, who was an English teacher, Dwight Johnson, who was one of my design teachers, who also actually gave me my first freelance gig. Lorraine McNeil, who was my copywriter teacher. That, yeah, those were the three professors that I had through my years at Pratt that did offer me help, it's particularly Dwight Johnson. Now, he's the one that really, in the beginning years, I modeled myself after him. Now, he gave me the first freelance job. I just personally and professionally, I styled myself after him because I just thought he was on point. I was like, I want to be like him. Now, so Pratt, overall, if, if I had to choose today, I would not necessarily go to Pratt. There's so many other schools out here that are actually pretty good and cheaper that I probably would have went to. But that's how Pratt was. 
There's really not much to say about City Tech because at that time, City Tech had a reputation of being a super high school. Mm. You know, it was just a continuation. And then, I mean, having worked at City Tech now and, and working at City Tech now, I will say they definitely have changed that, which is for the better. Yeah. But back then, it was it was really classified as just, you know, an extension of high school. Yeah. Know? And folks, folks acted the same way, you know. So it was good to get that sort of foundation in City Tech and actually meeting few professors there, Dorothy Hayes, Joel Mason, Robert Holden. They were actually good teachers that kind of helped me build a real portfolio so that when I they applied to Pratt again to transfer over, my portfolio was much more readily accepted now that I had a portfolio. Yeah. Know. But yeah, that's how, you know, my experience is that I, I don't look too fondly on my college years, it was kind of rough on instances that I wish I had more camaraderie among some of my fellow classmates and a little bit more, actually not a little bit, a lot more help from my professors. Mm-hmm. You know, it just wasn't really there. You know. Yeah. May have changed now. I had, don't know how Pratt is at this moment now, uh, other than I know it's highly expensive. Um, <laughs> But yeah, that that's how my experience was there. So you graduate from Pratt. Tell me what your your early career is like, because I, I want to also just kind of you know put this in a in a time frame here. I mean, you're mm-hmm. studying design at a time when personal computers were not really part of design. No. So yeah. I'd love to kind of hear like what was your early career like once you graduated. I have to say, I think my early part of my career probably was the most fun part of my career where I think it, I chalk it up to youth where, I mean, there was no holds barred. I thought I could do anything. I was like, I was ready for every stuff. And it was pre-computers. So I was pretty good with my hands in doing that. Cause um, in the beginning, in my uh, beginning career, we did everything by hand. So we did boards. Type was done through a we would send it to our typesetting department, or you would send it out to typesetting companies, and they would run off, what was that called? A linograph? I think it was called a linograph. Um, mm-hmm. Basically, it was just a sheet of paper that had the type set on there, and you would cut that up, paste it on the board with rubber cement. Um, it was very hands-on. You, you know, That was where you get your-, your Oh, Letraset. Is that what you mean, Letraset? No, Letraset was for the, if you're doing like display type. Um, okay. But the actual body copy, the um, that text you could you would <laughs> if you tried putting that on letter set, uh, you would kill yourself because oh. it would be con- tedious and oh so time consuming. So that was set by a machine that just ran off, sort of like photo paper. You can kind of say it, and you would just cut it down to size as you needed. Um, oh yeah, that's linotype. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Linotype. That's it. Not linocraft. Linotype. The letter set really is for display type. You know, mm-hmm. If you want to do custom things and stuff like that, uh, especially like logos, if you were going to do logo stuff. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Back then, that's where you would actually get your battle scars because by cutting all that stuff with the exacto blade or actual razor blade, it was no way you were not going to cut your hand. Mm-hmm. And, and, <laughs> and getting cut with exacto blade is better than getting cut by a razor blade. Because those razors are deep. Um, (laughs) 
but you just that was just part of course your hands your fingers would be all scarred up like you don't see them so much now in my hands but there's one or two spots that you still see where i have some heavy cuts but that's how we actually did stuff by putting them on boards gluing down the type the images we would actually have to send out to a stat house and they would take basically what was a full-scale image or a film um it'd be like uh they would send you a negative and you would send that negative to printer you would put down sort of a for intense purposes like a xerox copy of what it is just to give them precision placing everything down with tracing paper to cover everything up do some inking when you needed to do some things and that was a lot of pen and ink work which i think is is sorely missed from today's work uh, folks are so reliant on digital that they don't know how to create stuff by hand anymore And there is a beautiful nuance between hand-created stuff and digital stuff. Digital can be too clean. Even the stuff that try to simulate man-made stuff, it still has a cleanness about it that doesn't exist in handmade stuff. And all that would take uh, some serious time. So if you wasted time, like if say, okay, I'm not going to work on this today, you lost 24 hours that can really impact your deadline. Now, unlike today, where everything is like, okay, well, I'm not going to work on this right now. I'll do it tomorrow. You don't lose that kind of time because digital is so quick. It's so instantaneous. But working there, you know, I, my very first start was I had gotten an internship at a small ad agency out of the result of, at that time, I was the president of the Black Student Union at Pratt. And I was all about business. So I was looking at the Black Student Union as a way to start linking us up with job opportunities to various different agencies and studios in New York City so that we can get a head start on the other students, i.e. our white students who easily have these connections and get into stuff. But folks were not looking for us. So I was like determined to try and get us a jump start and One of the agencies who participated in that program, I was awarded the internship, which was a whole story because essentially folks didn't participate. There was only a few folks that actually came out and participated, which really disappointed me on that. And I got it because my portfolio was the best out of it. And folks had issues with that. But I'm like, if you don't apply, you can't complain. And so I worked there for the summer of 1989. Uh, so once I graduated, they offered me a full-time job. So I worked there for the summer. And I was doing, it was an ad agency, but I was doing a lot more design work. And I was the de facto art director because I was the art department. Because <laughs> the, the agency was, it was a Black-owned agency. It was just um, the principal and two other people in there. Excuse me. And it was a good experience because I was able to do my first photo shoots, meet these uh, photographers, do go see, set up model stuff. I had to battle folks because folks were like, Are you sure you're the art director? You seem a little young. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, yeah, I am young, but I am it. Um, the only thing that kind of saved my grace a bit where people gave people a little pause at time was that, you know, I towered over everybody. I was six. Was I 6'6 six, six then when I graduated? I was either between 6'4 or 6'6, six, because six, uh-huh. I don't think I reached my peak until around 23, 24. Okay. 
And so I towered over everybody. So my height kind of gave me some more credence and credibility and stuff. But um, I always always had a baby face. I still sort of do have a baby face. I mean, it's getting a little older. But so folks question that. But once I started doing the work, they were like, okay, no, you seem to know what you're doing. I kind (laughs) of learned it as I went through because if I didn't know something, I was determined to go find out how to do it. And that's where, because that was pre-internet. So Mm -hmm. again, I hit up libraries. Now, I mean, there was so much information out there that people just don't realize if you just get up and look for it, there's a world at your fingertips. And I would just find out information um, on the rare occasions that actually just ask people in the industry. I'm like, you don't know me, but can I just ask you a question? And folks were surprisingly helpful. So I did that and I was pretty much given leeway to do stuff, which is not usually the case. I don't know why that actually occurred. I was actually, I consider myself lucky in a lot of the places I was employed at. I was given a lot of leeway. I was given the autonomy to like, you're the leader, create your stuff. Now, I don't know if it was the aspect of how I carried myself, how I did my work, because I always felt I was nervous. I I was a nervous wreck. I'm like, do I really know what I'm doing? I don't know. I, I was always doubting myself in my head, but I would not let that show. I would not let that be known to anybody. And so for those three months, I... That was still, everything was still done by hand. Now, the the only computers in there were for the administrative views. And I will freely admit, I used that computer to play my video games. Um, <laughs> yeah, because I've been on video games since Atari 2600. Uh, even though Atari was crap, I had ColecoVision. But that's a side note. Um, <laughs> so we were still doing stuff by hand. And I was doing some long hours. There was no, okay, it's five o'clock. Everybody go home. No, I was there till about 11 at night, 12 at night. And the owner would just give me the key to the place and say, you know, just lock up when you need to, which I thought was, wow. Now, again, I seem to endear confidence to people that they gave me this responsibility. And I never broke that, that trust on that responsibility. And so from there, I, after about three months, three months, like I said, again, be a, a young creative. I was a little too cocky. And I was like, you know what? I'm tired of this. I can get me another job like that. And so I quit. You know, I was like, I want to do something else. And that's when I realized, no, Andrew, that's not how it works. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I got a hard dose of reality is like that. I need to get my ego in check. And I was out of work for a good number of months. Back then, you know, you found your jobs through the classify ads in the paper, which I know today everybody would like, what's a newspaper? Yeah, what's a classified ad? Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's equivalent to a job listing online. Yeah. And I found a listing for an associate art director at this publishing company. And I said, oh, OK, that's a different genre. Let's kind of see how that is. Submitted my resume. They called me in for an interview. And I got a surprise. <laughs> Because when I came in for the interview, that's when I learned that the magazine was for an adult. It was an adult magazine. It was an adult publishing. Oh. And I was like, okay, this is interesting. But then when they actually told, specified what 
market in the adult publishing. It was uh, it was a gay lifestyle magazine. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. this was nineteen eighty nine. So and that was in the height of the AIDS ep- epidemic. Uh-huh. The Black Kid from Bed Stuy. You know, there was a lot of stigma to the gay community and stuff like that. My concern was like, well, okay, this X-rated stuff. Can I get a job after this if I take this? Um, right. That was my main concern, and so did very well in the interview. It was interesting when they said at this. I'll share with everybody. In 1989, the starting salary at that position was $22,000. Ooh. I thought that was a lot of money back then. <laughs> yeah. And it, and it was a lot of money because it supported me very well. Went back home, had a conversation with my mom, like, you know, hey, this is, I went to this job. It looked pretty good. What do you think? And she was like, are you there to do what you earned your degree in? I said, yes. They're, what are they paying you? I told her the salary. She's like, so what is the problem? <laughs> I said, there's no problem. It's just uh, if you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, not supposed to be doing, but if you're doing what you've been, you got your degree on and this is your career. Yeah. What's the issue? It's your starting point. Now, it doesn't mean that's your end point. And with talking to my mom, I was like, you know what? That makes sense. And so after that conversation, it, again, coincidentally, I got a call from the art director that I met. She offered me the job mm. now. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll take, I'll see you. You know, and I started working. I stayed there five years. And so I rose from associate art director to an art director for monthly magazines. And yes, they were all towards the game market. I learned quite a lot. I learned that if you're a good designer, you can design for any market. It's about understanding your market and understanding what you're doing for. Uh, what are you doing in that project to address your market and doing a, the benefit of doing that magazine was that it wasn't a straight, just pictorial kind of magazine. It had lifestyle. It had, so they had editorial in there and it was, you know, unless you know what the magazine was, it could have just been in any mainstream magazine. Mm -hmm. Um, At the time, the advocate and out were, Two magazines in the game market that were that just kind of came out, and they were they were getting a lot of shine. They were the number ones, and they were beautifully done magazines. They were beautifully designed, and I kind of used that as my inspiration and model to sort of do my lifestyle stuff as, which was very successful, and it helped me transition from there to other to my next gig, which was at Essence Communications. But in those five years, that's when I started. We transitioned about a year. Yeah, I think it was about a year after I started transitioning into computers, the Mac, um, okay. in 1991, I believe. Because uh, that was the other premise I stayed with. Why I wanted to take the opportunity, too, is that they had said they were going to make that transition from doing stuff production-wise with the mechanical boards to move into doing the work electronically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they were going to use Macs. I'm sorry, that wasn't 1991. That was 1990. Okay. Yeah, it was 1990 because I started in 89. And then I think in the spring of 1990, that's when they started introducing the Mac, gave us courses. We went out there, myself and my other coworker, who was the other associate art director on the magazine I was working on, 
we we just blew it out. We we were at class and then we would come back to the office and take what we had in class to apply it and continue it learning and doing stuff and seeing how things work when we were back in the office. And our art director at the time was like, that's great because you're going to help me learn this because I don't get what's going on. Yeah. And he was older than us and stuff like that. <laughs> but it was fun. It was um, and it made things go so much faster when now we're doing our own typesetting. We now scan in images. So we now can place them into our documents. We actually have the live files where we actually start learning how to photo retouch, photo calibrate, how to typeset, how to create special print techniques like masking, fit colors, all this stuff that the bad side of that was it actually, with the advent of the Mac, it eliminated whole industries. Mm. We lost type houses. Those faded out because now people could do it themselves. We lost a lot of production folks who actually, if you didn't actually do the boards yourself, they you could hire people to do it. You know, just create and then give the directions to them. Two, losing some of the business with the photostat houses, those closed out. Um, and they, those closed out relatively within one year after the Apple came onto the market. Mm-hmm. Changed the whole face of downtown Manhattan which used to be all typesetting printers and photostat houses. By 1991, it was virtually a ghost town from those businesses. They had gone. They had transitioned to something else. So some of the photostat houses turned into scanning places. So they would scan. They could scan some original art now because illustration, uh, especially big pieces, because at that time, a lot of the illustrators still did the work by hand. They didn't do digital work. Yeah. And some of these pieces were pretty big. They couldn't fit your normal day tabletop scanner. Cause um, all this stuff back then was pricey as heck. You know, tabletop scanner probably was like next to a thousand dollars. Yeah. Um, that was a lot of money. <laughs> so it was cheaper just to send it out and get a $50 scan. Now, and you just get that scan to you and you can put it on. But that changed the way you no longer now had your battle scars. So your fingers were saved. You didn't have to cut up your fingers anymore. And it also kept from getting blood on the boards because that's always that was always interesting when we got blood on the boards because you had to wipe that out. Otherwise, that's in the actual when they shoot it. Yeah. Um, now it's just clean. Now, um <laughs> And now at this point, though, our role shifted as creatives because so much stuff relied on us. We actually had to know how to operate this Mac inside and out, especially when if there was a problem with the Mac. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we had IT, quote, IT department. But thankfully, the Mac was and still is very sort of self-sufficient. So when things go down, it's kind of easy to kind of figure out what's going on to get it back up. But that usually relied to us. Um, in the beginning, we had a service that would come in and fix that stuff. But eventually, you know, the owner was like, look, you guys are working on this. Do you know how to do this? Because we're cutting this. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. But it actually opened up more doors on the creative side. I mean, yes, we lost a lot of industry and a lot of people had to adapt. Some folks didn't because... Because of the manual nature of design at that point, 
a lot of them were older generations, and so they did not want to learn how to use the computers and learn these programs. Very much like today. It's a generational thing. Mm-hmm. The older generation just was like, I can't change. I, I learned all this. How am I going to, I don't want to sit down and learn this whole new program and this, this contraption <laughs> you know, to do this. You know? And that's where a lot of folks didn't make that transition. Transition. They either had to leave the industry and do something else yeah. or just completely retire. And like I said, that changed the shape of downtown Manhattan because it also changed the printers um, and a lot of those started consolidating and shrinking down to what we see today. But um, it also sped up our creative process. Mm-hmm. So if we had an idea, we could actually instantaneously see how it works. Where at that time, it was Quark Express. Mm-hmm. That was the de facto thing. There was no creative cloud. Adobe was this brand new company battling with Macromedia, mm-hmm. battling with, uh, what was the other one? Uh, oh, Publisher, yes, Quark Express had to battle Microsoft Publisher back in the day. Oh, um, I remember Microsoft Publisher. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, uh, we had not Illustrator, but it was freehand. Yep. And Photoshop was Photoshop. Um, that never disappeared. And so you had to buy all these individually. So back then, being a designer was expensive. expensive. Mm-hmm. Because the Macs themselves were... These god-awful paperweights, because uh, the, the, <laughs> the base of the, the Apple, I mean, at the time, it looked sleek, but looking at it now, it's like, oh, man, that's just a it was a, It was like the it was like a big like rectangle kind of thing, right? Yep. It was like the was, screen and the CPU were all in one. Yes, that version, yes, they had that. The screen was probably no more than maybe 13 inches, mm-hmm. you know, which seemed big at the time. Yeah, and then they transitioned to having the monitor separate from the tower because everything mm-hmm. was a tower back then. And that's where the screen started getting bigger and stuff. But it still, it cost a lot of money. And everything was on a disk. Nothing was cloud-based because the internet didn't come into play until 1985. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yeah, like the cloud wasn't a no. thing back then. Everything yeah, was cloud didn't exist. Everything was floppy disks, and then the floppy yeah. disk gave way to floppy. like those smaller hard disks. Yep. Floppy zip. to the zip to yep. well, actually floppy to the quest to the zip. Oh, yeah. To the dat. Thank God we didn't have to do the dat much. Um, <laughs> and then there was something in between. It was a hybrid of a, a zip and the quest. Is that right? I forgot the technology in it, but it went through some iterations in a span of five years. Yeah. Now, each year was something new, which ex- was expensive. It was, it was crazy. I mean, it didn't come out of my pocket, <laughs> but it was expensive. But you had to adapt to each of those technologies and stuff. Basically, if you kind of damaged your CDs, there was no way to get a backup. Yeah. Now, if those discs, if your machines got corrupted, the disc got corrupted, and corrupted meaning by, you know, you just scratched the back of that disc. Because somebody did not put it up properly, mm-hmm. it's done. Yeah, that would mean you have to spend another thousand dollars to go buy some brand new discs of one program. Yeah. <laughs> same with type. Yeah, you had to do same with type, all that stuff. But it did enable to have more creative tools at hand. So if you had an idea, you could still do it by hand. But now you could 
translate it, do your sketch and translate it onto the computer where you can actually do different variations in the same day, where it may have taken us a few days to do iterations of one idea. And that sped up a lot of stuff. What, and it was kind of cool. It uh, expanded our imaginations. It put more responsibility on us, which I liked because I like being in control and knowing what's going on with the Mac and, and the program. So that way I could troubleshoot myself because at that time I was thinking, OK, this is going to be helpful for one day when I want to start freelancing get my own materials or when one day I have my own studio. Cause back then I thought about my end goals. I had this studio, get this whole staff and, you know, become a small to mid-sized kind of well-known studio. And that's pretty much like the early days. It was uh, very much unexplored. So anything and everything was open. And it was just, if you were into adventure, it was an adventure. You were so curious to see what the next thing was going to be. Whereas today, I'm like, look, slow down. Yeah, there's too much stuff coming out. It's like, I just learned this. Now you got something new? No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> That's not happening. It's too yeah. fast. You know? As well as I think today, technology is great, but I think it also makes people stupider. People put more faith on the tech versus their thinking. And they, they're not sort of like... They're relying too much on the machine and not relying on themselves, you know, because the machine is just a tool. And in the early days, we did see that. It was just a tool. That's all we looked at. It was like, unless we had our thoughts together before we went to the machine, we'd be wasting our time because Mm -hmm. you're just fiddling around, just getting lost in this virtual world. You know, today it seems to be the reverse. People don't mind fiddling on there. And they spend so many hours that basically are are futile. It just wastes stuff, you know. But that's how the early days were. It was really a fun, exploratory, I don't want to say Wild Wild West, but it kind of was a Wild Wild West. And then when the net came on board, because uh, I remember fully using the internet in 95, but we actually did have the internet. The company was called Mavidi Media. Mm-hmm. I think that came, we had that online around 1993, because I left Mavidi Media in 1995. So yeah, I think it had just started. And at that time, I think it was, it was all, everything was AOL or Netscape. Yep. And the net just was, oh, we just went bonkers with that. It was just like... Oh, I can get this right now, even though that was on dial up. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that was taking a long dial up. I don't miss at all. You could not do any high files with that or anything like that. It, it just was um, it was too slow. No, yeah. but that's what the early days were like. You know, it was kind of cool. When I give presentations, sometimes I'll tell people how, like, in the early days of the Web, you had a fast lane and a slow lane. Yep. Like the fast lane was like if you had 56K and the slow lane was 28.8. I love that you're talking about all of this because I feel like this is something which is definitely not talked about in this current age of design. Everything is done in the cloud, on the web, on a PC or a Mac, like so quickly, sometimes even just on mobile devices. Like I see what people do designing on just mobile devices. And I'm like, this blows my mind because like, I was in high school in the 90s when a lot of this technology was coming out. And to your point, as you were mentioning, like this, these things were changing 
rapidly. Like as the technology was changing, there were no sort of monopolies like an Adobe, you know, like we're talking about now, but Mm -hmm. there was Adobe, there was Macromedia, there were other sorts of products. There was Quark. You had to try to figure out which one you wanted to do. It was all extremely expensive and there really was no, I want to say there was no learning curve, but like you learned by having to actually get in there and work it or go through those huge, big, thick instruction manuals. Cause there's no, oh, yes. there's no YouTube video. There's no, yeah. there's no class yeah. you can go to. That's going to teach yeah. you how to do this. You got to read that thousand page yep. manual and figure <laughs> out how to typeset these columns and how to do all this stuff. Like, I mean, to your point about the wild, wild west, it really was a time when I think innovation was happening at a speed where people were really just trying to catch up. Yeah. Like you had these different options, you know, like you said, you could do Quark, you could do Adobe, you could do Macromedia. Mm -hmm. So, and like a lot of jobs, sometimes even when you apply to them, like wanted you to know one more than the other. It wasn't so much about whether or not I think you had the skill, but more Mm -hmm. so whether you knew the program. And I think that's something which technology has definitely changed a lot. Like it's less about the skills and more about do you know how to use Figma? Do you know how to use Sketch? And it's like, but I'm a designer. And they're like, well, we really, well, we use Figma. So do you know how to use that? You know, like it's, it's a different, it's so different now. Well, I mean, back then when I was looking at stuff, when I was doing job searches, when I was moving from space to space, the thing that did start happening was that they wanted you to know this insane amount of programs. They, mm. I think they just listed these programs because that's what was out. And they were like, we want you to know everything. And it's like, okay, that's impossible. <laughs> you can't know all this stuff. And, right. it's like, and it was very much, I don't think they really wanted skill set, but just to say, okay, well, we have somebody who knows this. Regardless of whether or not they actually know how to use it, I could have just went into the program one time just to look at it. Oh, I know, I know this program now. That kind of impeded some people as they looked for jobs back then because it was like, look, I don't know this stuff. I'm not going to put this down and then get busted when they give me this and like, hey, we need this full-fledged project done in this by this time. And you don't even know what you're doing with it. Um, I mean, granted, there were some people who did do that and coasted by till I got found out later on. But by then, they could kind of sweet talk it through and then others shamelessly got blasted i remember that back then mm-hmm. but yeah it's a, that was, that's where it went from like it was like more okay what is your true skill set and experience that you've actually shown a pattern of this versus here's our laundry list just let us know you've done this yeah i still kind of see that today though whenever there's some new tech out i, I do see some of these listings out here it's like hey do you know this I'm like okay that just came out last week how are right. people going to notice? It's like, so, but I mean, I think that's going to stick forever. That's going to be there because any new tech that comes out, I think people in the, that look for job, uh, who post these jobs, I don't think they're really the ones that, and we all know it's the HR departments. And so the HR departments don't really know what people do in their day-to-day stuff. So I think they just put all the trendy stuff in there just to cover their bases. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I do miss some of that from back in the day. It was kind of cool. And I mean, there is some new stuff like that today, particularly in terms of web and video that I see some parallels that I'm like, ooh, that's intriguing. But now with a seasoned book, I'm like, wow, 
that's kind of overwhelming. I kind of feel overwhelmed at times. Like, Oh, I don't know if I'm going to learn all that, (laughs) (laughs) but it would be cool. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Big, big thanks to Andrew Bass. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Andrew and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. Transcripts are provided by Brevity and Wit. This episode of Revision Path is also brought to you by Hover. Building your online brand has never been more important, and that begins with your domain name. Show the online community who you are and what you're passionate about with Hover. With over 400 plus domain extensions to choose from, including all the classics and fun niche extensions, Hover is the only domain provider I use and trust. Go to hover.com forward slash revision path and get 10% off your first purchase. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Of course, we would love to hear from you on social media, so please don't be a stranger. Hit us up. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Just search for Revision Path, all one word. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or on Spotify. The more people you tell about the show, the bigger we become. And the further we can extend our reach to talk to Black designers, developers, artists, and other digital creatives from all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.